Today I'm going to preach on a topic that I wasn't planning to preach on when I first thought through this sermon series on eldership. It's something that we've been taking for granted in our series on elders so far. And in fact it's something that up until relatively recently Christians in any denomination could have taken for granted. And the topic as you can see from the bulletin is why only men? Why are we only considering men when it comes to eldership? This isn't a topic that's controversial in our own denomination or congregation. Uh, some congregations, it, it really would be, be a hot topic. Uh, but as we've discussed elders, no one has said to me, well, what's this only men about? And so maybe you're wondering, well, why devote a sermon to it if it's not really an issue for us? But it would be wrong to assume that just because no one has raised this, that no one has any questions about it. The last ordination of a ruling elder here was 48 years ago, and attitudes in many churches have changed since then. The Church of Scotland first allowed female elders in 1966, so that would all have been pretty new the last time an elder was ordained here. Since then, however, women elders and indeed ministers have become commonplace. So how can we justify not moving with the times? Furthermore, although the changes around us don't affect us directly as a church, we may have friends, acquaintances or family members who serve as female elders or who preach on occasion. So what are we to think about all that? So I think it's important to cover this topic because of what's happening all around us. But another reason to preach on this topic, even though it's maybe not an issue for us, is because it's always dangerous in church life to do things or to hold certain principles and just assume that everyone understands why. Assuming something in one generation will lead to the next generation abandoning, abandoning it because they've never been told why they do it or it will lead to the next generation keeping on doing it but not understanding why and they'll just end up holding on to it out of tradition rather than because they're convinced it's what the Bible teaches. And that's particularly the case when it comes to the roles of men and women in the church. I read the following quote last month and I think it's a really important point. I'll give you the quote in a second but just to explain one of the words in it. Uh, complementarianism, that's, it's a big word. But it's just the idea that men and women have different but complementary roles in the, the home and in the church. It's, it's the opposite of the idea that's common today which says that the gender doesn't, uh, doesn't affect what service in the church might look like. So this quote comes from uh, someone who's a complementarian uh, that is someone who holds the same position that we hold and this is what he said. He said when complementarianism is just handed to a church without ever teaching the rationale behind it, the rationale is generally assumed to be that women are either untrustworthy or incompetent. And a generation after the people in the pews start assuming it, he says that the men that are now leading the church will make the same assumption. So it's always dangerous to hold certain positions without explaining them. 
And particularly when it comes to not having women as elders or ministers, the assumption can easily become that it's because we think they're untrustworthy or incompetent. And even if we don't make that assumption ourselves, others will do. Occasionally I've had people say to me things like, we have this new woman minister and she's far better than the man we had before. Uh, And that may be true, but it's not as if doing the job better than someone else disproves the notion uh, that women shouldn't be ministers. But we're not trying to claim that women are untrustworthy or incompetent, just that God has given different rules to different people. God has given us all different roles to play in, in our homes, in the church. Uh, and that doesn't mean uh, we're not equal. It just means God has given us different roles. And as we'll see later on, but as I want to make clear right from the beginning today, what we're not saying today is that no woman can be an elder, but any man can be. We're not saying that there are roles in the church that no woman can do, but any man can do because the only people that should be elected as elders are men that God has qualified and equipped for the role which will always be a minority even of the men in any congregation so it is an important topic we're going to look at it under two headings saying firstly that we must follow the bible and not the culture we must follow the bible and not the culture Did you know that the Covenanters in the 1600s were attacked for their attitudes to women? And they were attacked not because they were seen as anti-women, but because they were seen as too favourable to women. Samuel Rutherford, he was Covenanter minister down the road in Anworth. He's best remembered for his famous letters. And 171 of them, half of what we have, were written to women. At the time of Rutherford, an Irish bishop claimed that a particular reason for the advance of Presbyterianism was through women who he believed had worse judgment than men. Uh, The bishop contemptuously alleged that Presbyterian pastors like Rutherford enabled women to prattle matters of divinity. He didn't like the idea that, that women would discuss theology. And so as we come to this topic, we do so remembering that Presbyterians have been attacked for their views on women in the past. And so Presbyterians have a long history of being counter-cultural when it comes to their views on women. Today, of course, the pendulum has swung completely the other way. Presbyterians are at odds with wider society again. But this time it's not because we give women too much influence, but because it's claimed we don't give them enough. But no matter what people around us say, we must listen to God. After all, it's his church, not ours. The question isn't how we think the church should operate, but how God has said it should operate. And we come today to a very clear command in God's word. First Timothy 2 verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. And for most of church history, that went largely unchallenged. As Ted Donnelly, who's an Irish RP minister, has put it, the words are simple, the grammar straightforward, the meaning obvious. For over 1900 years, 
Most Christians have understood that Paul is prohibiting women from teaching publicly or holding ruling office in the church. That women have not done so has been due, for the most part, to an acceptance of this emphatic statement as the word and will of God. Today, however, the tide has turned. The interpretation of, of this verse, the, the natural interpretation of this verse is challenged. And for, for many, the tide has turned because what the Bible says doesn't really matter to them. Some of you ask me from time to time, how can that church over there do this or that when the Bible says not to? And you're right to be amazed. You're right to be shocked. But many of these churches have been ignoring the Bible in all kinds of ways for generations. And so the fact fact that the Bible may state something clearly doesn't really mean a lot to them. Others, however, want to try and hold on both to a high view of the Bible, but also have women in leadership. So how do they try and hold them both? Well, they argue that what Paul says here is because of the cultural context he was writing in. They argue that at this particular time in history, it would have been too shocking to have women in leadership, or that women weren't well enough educated to have been able to preach and and so on. But times have changed, and if Paul was writing today, he would say something different. Uh, presumably they would also say well if Jesus was alive today he wouldn't just pick his 12 disciples to be men well it is true that there are commands in the New Testament that don't apply to us or at least don't apply to us in the same way as they did when they were first written because we're living in different times One which I think we can all agree on is the command to greet one another with a holy kiss. That's a command that doesn't just appear once in the Bible. It doesn't just appear twice. Four times in the Bible we're commanded to greet one another with a holy kiss. But I didn't see anybody doing that on the way in today. Why not? Well, because we realise that that command to greet one another works itself out in different ways, in different cultures. Yes, we still have a responsibility to greet one another, not just to file in and file out again, ignoring uh, as many people as we can in the process. Some cultures today, like France, they, they do have the custom of greeting one another with a kiss. But I don't know of anyone who argues that, that this New Testament practice is a, a transcultural practice that everyone in every age has to follow. But how do we know that the command in front of us today is any different? How do we know that it's not just cultural? Well, because Paul roots it in creation. He roots it in creation. Look at the very next verse, verse 13. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Yes, Paul is going to go on to talk about the fall and about Eve being deceived. But even the fact that Adam was created before Eve means that we have male headship right at the beginning. So even in a perfect world, even in a world before the fall, before sin came into the world, you have this distinction between men and women. So the fact that our our sin has been dealt with through Jesus Christ, it doesn't remove a distinction 
which was already there before sin came into the world. But then the next verse goes on to talk about the fall. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived. Now what that definitely isn't saying is that the fall was more Eve's fault than Adam's. When Paul talks about the fall elsewhere, he doesn't even mention Eve. He says in Romans 5.11, just as sin came into the world through one man. Uh, back in Genesis 3, when God calls them to account, he calls to the man and says, where are you? And that's why we finished our, our reading at that verse. He calls to the man. Edward Lee, who was part of the Westminster Assembly, makes a, a strong argument that Adam's sin was worse than Eve's. Adam was the one who'd received the command directly from God not to eat. Uh, To be deceived is less of a sin uh, than to sin against knowledge. So Paul is not saying that Eve was more at fault than Adam. But what is he saying? I think we can understand verse 13 in two ways. It may be a statement about the nature of women in contrast to men. It may be not saying that women are inferior to men or less godly than men, but simply that men and women have different inclinations which leave them liable to different temptations. You know, I think we, we'd all agree with that. Uh, and the emphasis here would be that, that some of the woman's very strengths, such as empathy, may leave her more open to doctrinal deception. So that's one understanding of the verse. But it is also possible Uh, that verse 14 isn't saying that Eve would have been any more easily deceived than Adam would have been if he was in the same position. Uh, But rather, it may simply be making the point that the fall happened in verse 14 because in verse 13, the proper order between husband and wife had already been reversed. The fall happened when the man was absent, or at least when he was physically present but it absented himself from his role of leadership. And that is at the root of everything that followed. Before Eve ever spoke, the problem was that Adam wasn't speaking. Eve found herself in a situation that she should never have been put into because of the failure of her husband's leadership. Just as many women today have ended up taking on the role of elders because the men haven't done so. The women have stepped up because the men haven't done so. It, it, it doesn't make it right, but the, the primary fault is with the men. In the garden, Adam was prophet, priest and king of the human race. And as prophet, Adam failed to declare God's word to his wife and to the snake. Adam, who should have spoken, was silent. But Eve, who should have been silent, spoke. So to sum it up, the reason that teachers and those in authority are to be men is because man was formed first and the fall shows the tragic consequences that follow when God's established order is reversed. When men are silent and women take on leadership roles. Ray Ortland sums it up well. He says, Eve usurped Adam's headship and led the way into sin. And Adam, who it seems had stood by passively, Adam for his part abandoned his post as head. Eve was deceived. Adam forsook his responsibility. Both were wrong and together they pulled the human race down into sin and death. 
And then reflecting on that, he applies it to today. He says, isn't it striking that we fell upon an occasion of sex rule reversal? Are we to repeat this confusion forever? Are we to institutionalize it in the name of evangelicalism, in the name of the God who condemned it in the beginning? So why only men? Because we must follow the Bible and not the culture. But then secondly, and something that's important to say as well, the restrictions in the verse are also restrictions on men who aren't elders. Uh, So the restrictions in this verse, 1 Timothy 2.12, they're also restrictions on men who aren't elders. One of the questions that, that women may ask in light of what we believe the Bible teaches here is, well, what can I do? And I think at least sometimes the reason they ask that because conservative churches can give the impression that men can do everything in church, but women can't do anything. And there are various reasons for that. One might simply be the way that we talk about it. Sometimes we talk about male leadership in the church, and that's true in a sense. It's true in that leaders must be male, but it's only a partial truth. Because we don't believe that people lead in the church simply because they're men. Rather, we believe in biblically qualified and ordained male leadership. The only leadership rules we have in the church is that of the elders. And the vast majority of people in the congregation won't be elders. Even deacons, even though they are ordained they are in a role of service rather than of ruling or governing. So just to talk about male leadership in the church may not be particularly helpful because it can give the impression that being male is enough to qualify someone to be a church leader. Whereas many men are absolutely unqualified to lead in the church. Another reason why women may feel that they can't do anything is because unordained men are given the opportunity to lead public worship from the front. When Paul says here, I do not permit a woman to teach, is he saying that I permit any man to teach? Is he saying that any man can exercise authority in the church? Well, we know that he's not because of what he says elsewhere. He says in Romans 10, how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? So preaching, it's only for those who are commissioned to that rule. It's recognised in our book of government that there are exceptional times when an elder may be called to step in and preach. But according to our Westminster standards, the leading of every act of public worship is limited to the minister. Uh, Preaching, it says, is for ministers and those intending the ministry. Reading of scripture is limited to the pastors and teachers. You know, Paul tells Timothy, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture. He doesn't say train lay people to do it. And based on Acts chapter 6, public prayer is said to belong to the same office as preaching. So whether it's preaching or reading scripture or praying in public worship, our standards rightly limit those things to the minister maybe maybe at a stretch you can include elders but they're certainly not for every man 
As one book on Reformed worship puts it, the key distinction in worship is not gender but ordination. Yes, ordination is limited to men. Um, We saw the reasons for that under the first point, going all the way back to creation itself. It's not arbitrary. But men don't lead in the church simply because they're men. But the more churches open up these rules to any man who's willing to do it, the more the impression is given that those who lead in church do so because of their gender rather than their office. So churches can give a misleading impression in how they talk about all this. They can muddy the waters by letting men lead elements of worship simply because they're men. And a a somewhat related question that occasionally comes up in psalm singing churches is, well, what about the presenter? In other words, the person who starts the singing. Uh, Some churches only have men doing it, whereas we don't. So is that not a a woman leading an element of worship? Well, I think actually this is a great illustration of the point I'm trying to make. I, I do get, by the way, that if someone has only ever seen a man doing it, then it might seem a bit odd to see a woman doing it. Uh, But I would argue quite strongly that presenting isn't a leadership rule, uh, that setting the pitch and singing the first words of a psalm are what our confession of faith would call a circumstance of worship, something that needs to be done to facilitate one of the elements of worship taking place. Our Book of Government says that it's a session's rule to direct the presenter, but if presenting was a leadership rule in itself, surely the presenter wouldn't need directed by the leaders of the congregation. But if someone wasn't convinced by that argument, I'd say fine, but say it is a leadership rule. Should we not then restrict it to elders? Surely we should. If it's a leadership rule, then surely it has to be done by a church leader. And the only church leaders that the New Testament knows are elders. There is no leadership rule in the church other than that of elder. And yet I've never heard anyone argue that. If it's not a leadership rule, anyone can do it. If it's a leadership rule, I believe only an elder should do it. So we can make it seem that women can't do much in church by letting men lead elements of worship simply because they're men. We can also limit women's rules to what I believe is an unbiblical extent by taking commands given in specific contexts and trying to apply them to other settings. So when Paul says here, I do not permit a woman to teach, what is the context? Well, I uh, read uh, just before the reading from from chapter 3, verse 14, I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. So this isn't a blanket prohibition on women teaching. He's talking about authoritative teaching in the church. When Paul uses this word for teach elsewhere, it's predominantly to do with the public doctrinal teaching of the church. So think sermons, adult Bible classes, that sort of thing. But he's not saying that there's no context in which a woman can teach. Women are included in the command we looked at last Sunday evening to teach and admonish one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Paul commands older women in Titus 2 to teach what is good 
and so train the young women to love their husbands and children. In fact, I don't think we need to have a problem with women teaching men in private, informally. Where is Timothy here when Paul's writing to him? Well, if you look back to chapter 1, verse 3, you'll see that he's in Ephesus. And in the book of Acts, we read about a man called Apollos who comes to that very city. He begins to speak boldly in the synagogue and he teaches accurately the things concerning Jesus. But he only knew the baptism of John. And we read that when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Interestingly, Priscilla is mentioned first. And while the word teach isn't used of what she and her husband do, the same word for what they do do is used elsewhere of Paul expounding the scriptures from morning till evening. John Calvin comments, we see that one of the chief teachers of the church was instructed by a woman. And he commends Apollos for allowing himself to be taught and instructed not only by a craftsman, but by a woman. If I, as a minister, think that because I'm a minister, someone in the congregation, whether man or woman, can't pull me aside and have a quiet word if they believe I've said something inaccurate, then I've lost the run of myself. Of course, someone could do that disrespectfully, but it doesn't have to be done disrespectfully. The Covenanter John Brown of Womfrey, when he was talking about women's participation in fellowship meetings, what we would call small group Bible studies, says that sometimes women may not only prove helpful, but in these meetings give a lesson to an old minister. In fact, one of the reasons that Covenanters and Reformed Presbyterians have argued so strongly that churches need to have small group meetings is because the New Testament has commands like exhort one another. And they argued that we can't do these things in public worship unless we turn Quakers. In other words, unless we all just allow everyone to stand up in church and speak as they feel led. But there must be other opportunities to follow these commands. So the silence of women in churches commanded in 1 Timothy 2 and also 1 Corinthians 14 isn't something we can just lift and apply to all areas of life. And in fact, even in church, it's not an absolute silence. You can see here in verse 12 that remaining quiet at the end of the verse is in contrast to teaching and exercising authority. It doesn't mean that she can't join in the singing or explain what's happening uh, to her children, uh, nor does it mean that, that, that any random man can speak up during the service. Public teaching is primarily what's in view. Matthew Henry, uh, the beloved commentator, comments on a similar verse in 1 Corinthians 14. Women must be silent in churches, not set up for teachers. Now, 1 Corinthians 14 doesn't actually spell that out. It just says that women must be silent in churches. But, but I think Matthew Henry is right to assume that it is a silence in contrast to teaching. Now, does that mean that, that preaching, teaching is, is the only thing that we limit to men? There are Reformed churches today who let women read the scriptures and pray in church. I think we're right not to. 
because although those things aren't teaching per se, they're tied in Scripture to the office of teacher, which, as I've been arguing, means that, that other men shouldn't be doing them either. But at Bible studies, for example, we don't have a problem with women discussing. We don't quote 1 Corinthians 14 and say, women must be silent in church because it's not church. We don't have a problem with them looking up and reading aloud a passage of Scripture. And while we respect the convictions of those who may differ, we don't have a problem with them praying audibly if there's a time of prayer. We don't have a problem with our children taking part. And as far as I can tell, the RP Church has never had, even going right back to the Covenanters. More importantly, I don't think the Bible has a problem with it either. The 1599 Geneva Bible, the first Reformed Study Bible, it comments on 1 Corinthians 14. It says, women are commanded to be silent in public assemblies. I think that's just a standard Reformed interpretation. And I think that trying to extend that silence to other spheres of life requires using arguments the Bible doesn't use. Yes, as we'll see tonight, it's not like outside the church men and women have identical roles in the home uh, there is headship and submission but I think that whether we're talking about the home or the church we're better to use the bible's categories teaching authority headship submission remembering that teaching and authority in the church are the role of elders so the question of what women can do is clouded if we talk as if men lead in church simply because they're men. Uh, I think it's also particularly clouded if we just think of church as what happens for an hour or two hours on a Sunday. Yes, this is the high point of of our church life uh, as we gather for worship. It's it's the high point of, of, of our weeks. But what about before and after the service? What about the rest of the week? What about all the one another commands encourage one another, build one another up, and so on. What about the various New Testament pictures of what the church should be like? A body where everyone has different roles, a family where no one is to be left isolated. In 1 Peter 4.10, Peter divides the gifts God gives his people into two categories. There are speaking gifts and there are serving gifts. Most people aren't given speaking gifts at least not the gift of speaking publicly before the congregation. Opportunities for speaking in church are limited, often limited to one person. But opportunities for speaking to people outside of the church and opportunities for serving are limitless. In fact, a quote from the 1988 Danvers Statement, with half the world's population outside the reach of indigenous environments, evangelism with countless other lost people in the societies which have heard the gospel with stresses and miseries of sickness homelessness addiction crime and loneliness no man or woman who feels a passion from God to make his grace known in word and deed need ever live without a fulfilling ministry for the glory of Christ and the good of his world and looking back to first Timothy 2 for one last time Uh, Nor can any discussion of women's roles be complete without thinking about the absolutely vital role that most women have as mothers. 
And in that role, they can have far more influence on the rising generation in the church than any minister or elder can have. Uh, that's something Paul, or Paul goes on to, to talk to Timothy about in verse 15, where in uh, the words of another covenanter, David Dixon, he, he comforts the woman against their exclusion from the pastoral office. But for the sake of time, we must stop there. But as we do, I want to leave us at the cross, or at least the events surrounding it. Back in the beginning, the world was plunged into darkness because of a man's silence. Adam abdicated his rule. Eve ate the fruit, and the human race fell. But then 2,000 years ago at the trial of the Lord Jesus, we have another man who was silent when he could have rightfully spoken, but chose not to for our sakes. He was silent at his trial when he could have protested his innocence because he was the sin bearer. And he was also silent as he went to the cross when he could have appealed to his father to send 12 legions of angels. The day the world fell was marked by a man being silent when he should have spoken. But the day redemption came was marked by a man being silent when he had every right to speak. But he chose not to for us. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. And your only hope for salvation today, whether man, woman, boy or girl, is if in light of his silence you are not silent. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. Well, as we close, we'll sing from Psalm 148a on page 361. We'll sing verse 1 and then turn over the page and sing verse 6 to the end. Uh, so Psalm 148a, uh, again I left the tune off the sheet but it's number 257, tune 257, singing verse 1 and then over the page verse 6 to the end. Uh, notice particularly verse 6, page 362, uh, we see there that all on earth, whatever rule they have are called to praise God, kings, peoples, judges, young men, women, old men, children, why? Well, because, verse 7, his name alone is high, his glory is exalted. And because, in verse 8, he has raised up a horn for his people. What on earth is that talking about, you might wonder? Uh, what's, what's this horn thing? Well, do you remember what John the Baptist's father said after John had been born and after he was able to speak again? Uh, the words that you may hear read at this time of year. Zechariah says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people, and he has raised up a horn of salvation. Who or what is the horn of salvation? It's Jesus Christ. And in light of all that he has done for us, let's now sing praise. So Psalm 148a, 1, 6 to the end, we'll stand and sing praise. <laughs>